Good afternoon. My name is Adisa Griffin, and I'd like to welcome you to the March 2013 Ask the Expert, Mindfulness and Parenting a Child with ADHD. Ask the Expert is a monthly series presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. It is a privilege to welcome today's expert, Mark Burton, MD. Dr. Burton, if you'd like to begin. Well, uh, thank you, Adisa, and thank you, everyone, who signed on to listen today. Um, the format today is slightly different than, than I often give, so I'm going to be giving an overview of a lot of information and then look forward to going into the uh, details during the question and answer. So for many of you signing in, you probably already have a sense of why ADHD really isn't just an attention problem and why um, something more might Dr. Burton? I'm sorry. So I want, yes, I'm here. Okay. So I'd like to uh, talk initially just about ADHD and why I feel like um, mindfulness might be useful in supporting traditional care, so in addition to evidence-based care talk a little bit about what mindfulness is, because it's a word that I think um, people have lots of different uh, impressions of, and then, and then end with a quick overview of different ways mindfulness might support families and children with ADHD. Uh, next slide, please. So for most of you signing on, um, you, you may be familiar with the traditional uh, diagnostic checklist for ADHD, which starts with a somewhat limited list of symptoms ADHD might cause, um, looks for them in different settings, so it tries to define them as a neurologic trait of any individual. Um, but even in this um, general impression of, of ADHD, separate from executive function, which I'll talk about next, we begin to see that ADHD is actually a, um, a, a far broader issue than one based just on the symptoms. The point isn't whether you can focus or not or control your impulses or not, the point is, is that these types of impairments begin to impact you in different parts of life. And I've always uh, thought that the most important word in the whole diagnosis of ADHD is impairment. So the point of even evaluating for ADHD or identifying ADHD is that it's impacting social development or someone's schooling, um, or as, as people get older, perhaps work or relationships. Uh, next slide, please. And if there's a single concept I think that's most important to understanding ADHD in early childhood, it's the concept of executive function. Um, executive function is a large group of cognitive skills that refer to really the brain's ability to monitor itself, the brain's ability to monitor and organize our thoughts and actions over the course of the entire day. Um, and while I can't talk about executive function um, for the rest of this hour, even though I, I'd certainly be happy to, um, a short version of uh, looking at it as a way of saying that executive function skills are really responsible for everything that has to do with planning and self-regulation for children. And in a very concrete way, ADHD represents a developmental delay in these skills. So we know that children with ADHD have a uh, neurologic difference, and that difference in many ways is traced back to the areas of the brain responsible for executive function. Uh, next slide, please. An executive function it turns out is far broader than just attention or far broader than just a school issue or many of the other ways ADHD is looked at. Executive function relates to many of the skills that we use to interact with the world. So ADHD, when children have it, affects how parents parent. 
it affects how people communicate. It leads to habitual patterns of behavior and responding to behavior. So a child misbehaves and we fall into a habit about how we're going to respond to that, or a child um, isn't getting their homework done and a habit develops over time. And really, overall, we can say very clearly that ADHD affects the well-being of relationships, parents, and families, um, not just the individual ch children who have it. Next slide, please. In fact, when you start looking at the research, parents of children with ADHD report increased levels of things like anxiety, depression. They struggle with the decision-making that goes into long-term care of ADHD. Their marriages um, are tenser, and there's a higher risk of, of things like divorce. So you begin to see that ADHD directly affects parents. And of course, since parents are responsible for managing ADHD, um, when they're feeling overwhelmed or when they're feeling off balance, that's going to impact how they manage care at home. Next slide, please. So if you want to talk about stress, which is part of where mindfulness relates to ADHD, um, stress is something that's very much amplified in ADHD. So um, we're all going to experience stress at terms in life. But stress, um, while in small doses can be motivating, in larger doses just isn't what we're wired to handle. So chronic stress begins to affect us physically, begins to affect us emotionally. Um, and on a day-to-day -day level, in talking about how we're going to parent or how we're going to manage ADHD, stress tends to make us feel more reactive. Stress may undermine our own executive function. Um, and stress may decrease the way we communicate or even the way we um, relate to the people around us. Um, and there's research suggesting that parent stress directly influences a child's stress. So that when parents manage their stress differently, their children tend to feel less stressed as well. So next slide, please. So how might mindfulness relate to that bigger picture of ADHD, the picture of ADHD as an overall disorder affecting self-regulation and affecting families? Uh, next slide, please. When people hear the word mindfulness, um, sometimes they think of something like this. So this, this slide shows a guru-like person sitting on a platform with a, in, in the background there, it says the journey to enlightenment. So, you know, this sort of goal of getting to some strange place that maybe seems really unfamiliar or, or different. Uh, next slide, please. But really, mindfulness is much more about this. It's the fact, it really addresses the fact that much of our lives, we're sitting and doing one thing, and our minds are kind of all over the place. We're not fully engaged with what's going on in our immediate experience. In many ways, we're kind of on autopilot. So we're talking to somebody but thinking of someone else, or we're trying to manage homework but we're still stressed about work, or we're driving somewhere but not paying attention at all to, to where we're going. And what tends to happen is these thoughts develop, these, thought, these thoughts that develop um, in many ways can amplify our stress. So while we're sort of on autopilot, while we're not really paying attention to what's going on, um, we're doing things a little more reactively than we might be capable, or we're, we're just falling back on long-standing habits, whether or not they're still useful at that point in time. Um, and often there's kind of a ripple effect. So each thought sends out a ripple of other thoughts and reactions. So we're worried about something, so that increases our stress level. So then we think the next worrying thought, and we start ruminating, and it keeps just escalating itself all day long, unless we actively choose to do something about it. Uh, next slide, please. And that has broad implications for how we feel day to day. So you know the details of this slide aren't so important, except to show that there's a very concrete physiological response to stress. It's related to the fight or flight response that 
evolutionarily speaking, relates to just safety. It's, it's the desire to just keep ourselves alive when we're being hunted by wild animals or, or in moments of danger. And that does have value. So when you talk about stress management, we're not talking about eliminating the stress response. But so often, what triggers the exact same stressful response, the exact same chain of hormones and chemicals and neurologic reactions, is a thought. It's a perception that there's a threat. And that perceived threat could be anything from being an actual physical danger to far more commonly in modern life feeling just hassled, feeling like we're going to be late, feeling like some situation isn't as under control as we'd like. So being more aware of our thoughts as they happen allows us to experience them differently. So instead of perhaps having a, a, a thought and immediately falling into this stress cycle, we might notice it and begin to let go of it and notice and not engage with every particular anxious thought that arises. So next slide, please. So the practice of mindfulness itself, then, is really not about getting anywhere, anywhere different in life. It's just addressing this tendency to be on autopilot and not paying full attention to our moment-to-moment -moment internal and external experience. So one definition of mindfulness is just living with moment-to-moment -moment awareness of our immediate experiences with openness, objectivity, and compassion, meaning um, just seeing things as they are and then doing our best to manage them um, and hopefully enjoy them when they're enjoyable as well. Um, a couple of ways of looking about mindfulness that are important to understand is that the meditation practice that sometimes goes along with mindfulness isn't mindfulness. Um, so there is a practice of focused attention that often supports mindfulness in a very concrete way. It turns out these are cognitive skills we can develop just like you might take on a weightlifting program or, or any other type of physical training and your brain will respond similarly. So if you practice paying attention or you practice being more responsive instead of reactive, those skills grow. Um, and while there are very many different types of meditation practice in the world, some of which I'm not particularly familiar with, um, mindfulness meditation is really at heart nothing more than noticing when we're distracted and practicing coming back to um, our immediate experience. And it can be really done by anybody. There's no goal of stopping thought and there's no goal of being completely relaxed or, or getting anywhere in particular except doing our best to stay focused, and when we're distracted, trying again, noticing we're distracted and coming back. Um, but really what's important to recognize is the meditation practice itself isn't even particularly the point. The point is to develop a set of cognitive traits, like being more aware of experience or being more responsive instead of reactive, that spill over into everyday life. Uh, next slide, please. A lot has changed about how we understand brain development in the last decade, and one of the core concepts that really confirms um, the potential benefits of mindfulness, and really why I'm here giving talks like this at all. Um, I don't really consider this much alternative medicine anymore at all, just because the number of studies that have supported its benefits. And a lot of these studies um, come back to the basic concept of neuroplasticity, which is that unlike we used to think, and unlike that many of us were taught um, even a couple of decades ago in medical school, um, the brain responds to any mental activity by physically rewiring itself if it's repeated over time. So again, much just like the um, physical activity example I gave before of if we work out our muscles get bigger, anything we do repetitively with our brain eventually hardwires itself. Um, and this relates to many, many different things. It certainly relates to the concept of attention training that I'm going to touch on shortly. Um, it even relates to why shopping habits are so hard to change or dietary habits are so hard to change. 
behavioral habits hardwire themselves, and then we really need to work at, re at changing them um, if we want to behave differently in the future. Next slide, please. Mindfulness itself has really um, crossed the line when it comes uh, to Western science. So what's happened in the last several decades is that there has been an exponential explosion of research um, to the point where there are now hundreds of studies a year coming out suggesting benefits for various parts of life. Uh, next slide, please. Some of these have to do with physical health, and for the purpose of this talk, I can't touch on the uh, individual studies except to say that if it seems impossible that something like mindfulness would help with so many different things, it, it sometimes I think seems a little like snake oil. Um, it's really not that complex, I don't think. It's that chronic stress interacts with almost any medical condition going on, and if we can learn to manage our stress differently, it can support care of really anything. So there's been studies looking at mindfulness and chronic pain, at various illnesses, um, there's been studies showing improved immune response to people practicing mindfulness. Uh, next slide. And mindfulness has also been shown to help with various um, various interventions in mental health. So help certainly manage stress or anxiety. Um, one of the best studied programs around mindfulness is called mindfulness behavior mindfulness based cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, um, which is widely used in England. But some studies down there showing benefit for um, helping maintain control of moderate depression over time. It's also been integrated into use with substance abuse, eating disorders, um, relationship therapy, and uh, as we're touching on today, ADHD. Next slide, please. Another exciting area of research is as the ability to take pictures of the brain has improved, we've seen structural changes in the brain demonstrated through the practice of mindfulness, some of which are quite remarkable. So. This slide shows a study done by Sarah Lazar at Harvard in which um, if you look on the right, this sort of diagonal line there shows that over time it, it was considered sort of just an a inherent part of aging that the um, outermost layer of the brain thinned over time. And in Sarah Lazar's initial study here of long-term meditators, she showed that in people who have been meditating for several decades, that thinning wasn't seen, which is a pretty amazing finding. So a physical difference in the brain of long-term meditators. She followed up that study later, or um, about 18 months ago now, and showed that after an eight-week practice of mindfulness, the parts of the brain responsible for emotional self-regulation had grown in people who had taken an MBSR class. Uh, next slide, please. So that's a very brief overview of what I find a really um, very interesting and exciting um, change in the field of neuroscience. The fact that we can take care of our brains a lot like we can take care of our bodies is, is a very new concept. Um, but for today, it's mostly meant to be a question and answer. So I want to give a, a few moments on reflecting on how mindfulness might support families and children with ADHD, and then really just um, looking forward to the uh, question and answer session that's going to follow. So next slide, please. So ADHD, as I mentioned before, isn't really about any of the things in its name, focus or hyperactivity. It's certainly not just about school. It really increases challenges at home and school and socially and in relationships and can affect self-esteem and stress and anxiety and a whole host of different aspects of everyday life. Next slide, please. So how might ADHD support families? Um, advance the slide, please. Certainly a big starting point is simply helping parents manage stress and really 
look at valuing that the fact that if parents take care of themselves, when parents' resilience improves, that is inherently going to improve care. The, the amount of effort and long-term follow-up required for managing ADHD, for staying positive with a child who's struggling with ADHD, for you know, sticking to behavioral plans, for dealing with challenging decisions around medication, all of it is really hard to do over time. And when parents manage their stress differently, it's going to affect how their experience of, of that long-term care is and also their children. Uh, next slide, please. Another way it helps with parenting is that so much of parenting and so much of uh, ADHD can drive people to being very reactive, to being very, um, to create cycles that have to do with, you know, overly quick responses to different situations or less than ideal um, responses to particular situations that are driven by reactivity, which is, which is true of all of us, um, but can certainly be amplified by ADHD. And often when I give talks on mindfulness, people um, immediately want to jump to how they're going to teach this to their kids um, because there's been a lot of research in children as well. And really at home, a lot of it starts with just modeling it yourself, living it yourself. So when more, more responsive, when challenged, when more, more able to um, skillfully negotiate a stressful situation, our children learn from that. So in addition to just helping us manage stress, mindfulness helps us be more responsive as a parent. Uh, next slide, please. Another aspect of mindfulness is the practice turns out not to be one of just focus attention. We start looking at what it is we notice when we start paying attention to our thoughts and paying attention to our emotions. And one of the things um, most people begin to see fairly quickly is that there are a lot of things that go on habitually. They might be different ways we deal with stress. They might be different ways we deal with ourselves and the sort of inner voices we hear that are very judgmental or judgmental of others. And all of those are just mental habits. They often seem very fixed and unchangeable. Um, but, but some research suggests that one of the best ways to change behavioral habits of any kind um, is just to be aware that they're habits, just to be aware that they're going on. So one of the things that mindfulness can support is breaking those habits, dealing with um, a misbehaving child differently or, a, or the school system differently or our spouse differently, just through awareness of, of how much we've been doing habitually in the past. Uh, next slide, please. And then you can talk about mindful decision making, which is that the decisions around ADHD can be incredibly demanding, ranging from you know looking at our parenting objectively and whether um, without blaming anyone for causing ADHD, because parents certainly don't, um, also being open to the fact that maybe there's something different we can do moving forward that might manage ADHD differently, or looking at an emotionally charged decision about whether we want to use medication or not use medication and then being able to pause and in a more responsive way um, work through the problem um, and, and come to a decision for or against um, with objectivity and clarity. So um, what I think is important to look at in this list is that a lot of the time when we talk about mindfulness or meditation, um, one of the first things that comes up is that our practice of focused attention. And people immediately begin to wonder if anyone is suggesting that through this practice of focused attention we can treat or or cure ADHD, and that's, that's certainly not what the research suggests. Mindfulness addresses the overall picture of care, um, and attention training is possible and may augment care, um, potentially, um, but that isn't really the point exactly. It's really this bigger picture of self-management that mindfulness assists with. Uh, next slide, please. 
So when you talk about specifically, instead of working much of what I do when I talk about mindfulness is working with parents, but how do you start working with parents, excuse me, how do you start working with their children? Um, a lot of it has to do with how we live our lives as parents, how we interact within the family. So certainly, um, if you want to introduce mindfulness to children, teach them how to regulate their emotions differently or teach them how to be more responsive under stress, a lot of it starts from practicing that as parents. Um, another very important aspect of working with children is just the entire idea of looking at communication that same way, looking at so much of how we communicate is unconscious that we don't choose to pay attention to it, our body language, our tone of voice, our word choice, the assumptions we're making, all of which are going to influence any communication with our kids at work. You know, we bring all that to the situation, and just awareness of that bigger picture can help change that dynamic. Um, and then I want to end, before I'm taking the questions, just touching for a moment on attention and mindfulness training. Next slide. Which is, it to say, which is to say that there is a body of research developing that we can train attention and executive function in children. Some of these are play-based interventions in preschool that aren't specifically talking about mindfulness exactly, but through interventions that build, um, that build impulse control and related abilities, we, can build, we may be able to build executive function through play. Um, there are other ways we could train attention potentially through computer training, through neurofeedback. But with mindfulness specifically, um, there have been classroom-based programs demonstrating improved executive function, improved working memory, improved behavior um, through mindfulness in schools. Next slide, please. If there's one practice, you know, people always ask what to do, and then I think I need to wrap up for, for, for this part of the talk, that I think sort of summarizes what we're trying to do is just that in any given moment, we just want to be aware of what's going on and then make intentional choices about what to do next. So one very simple practice that you can use um, in everyday life is called stop, which is just whatever you're doing, if you're feeling distracted or stressed or like you're not paying attention to what's going on, um, it's just a practice until it becomes a habit of just stopping, taking a few breaths, um, just observing what's going on, and then choosing how to proceed or picking what to do next. And that's really, in a nutshell, what we're practicing with mindfulness, just the ability to be fully aware that something's happening right now, and if I pause for a moment, I can more intentionally choose the next step. I could still be however I am, a sarcastic New Yorker, a, you know, I can still be, you know, it doesn't have to change you in any fundamental way, but you, but you increase your responsiveness and intentional behavior in any given moment. Uh, next slide, please. So um, in ending and switching to the question, the ADHD is a very complex medical condition, and mindfulness helps address it just by looking at that bigger picture of managing stress and well-being and building compassionate supports. Um, life experience itself remaps our brain, and with mindfulness at any point in life, all the way until senior citizens, you can start practicing something like this and, and hopefully see benefits in daily life. So um, I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you for your attention, and, um, and I guess I'll hand the mic over. So. Um, so we can start taking those questions now. So thank you again. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Burton. And uh, to our audience, I uh, just want to remind you that you can ask questions uh, using the uh, question pane on your GoToWebinar toolbar. And uh, Dr. Burton, um, we have a number of questions already that have come in. Many of them uh, were addressed, not briefly, in your, uh, your introduction. So uh, you may, if you don't mind, uh, expound on some of them. Uh, there were a number of questions about 
teaching children mindfulness mm -hmm. and at what age is that appropriate and uh, at how do you recognize the signs of stress that may indicate that mindfulness or another or a similar intervention might be uh, a good idea? Um, I think I'll, I'll answer the second question first, which is, um, you know, I, I think the general assumption is that we all live under stress and that mindfulness is, um, you know, the, the ability to manage that stress better can only help all of us. So um, I don't think there's any particular threshold for in introducing mindfulness practice. It's just if it's just a, um, you know, I really think in many ways the analogy is like physical fitness. I think some people are more fit than others as a, you know, sort of basic genetic trait and then working on, working on it can only help in everyday life. Um, in terms of how do you work with children, um, that's a huge question and there's no, um, there's no one answer. Uh, I think the biggest part of working with children really is doing it yourself. So it's very hard to teach it and it's very hard to talk to children about it if you're not already practicing it and showing them that in everyday life. So um, as much as it um, is very exciting often, you want to jump right to working with kids, really the beginning point is that ability to um, do it, to show it, to, and to live it yourself. Um, Otherwise, um, it really um, has to be very individualized and developmentally and made developmentally appropriate. So um, when you talk with teens, um, many teens are ready to talk about just the, the basic practices, the focused attention and awareness of emotions and working on responsiveness. Um, you, know, you have to translate it some and hopefully make it more engaging, but the basic practices are all the same. When you talk about younger, very young children, um, you're trying to make things more into play and it may just be um, on the one hand, when you talk about the, the you know, working with focus, working with impulse, impulse control, it's trying to make a game of it as much as possible, um, make it engaging but real. And then the other aspect of mindfulness, you know, there, there's really, mindfulness isn't particularly about focus. If you just paid focus attention to your life all day long, you'd probably drive yourself insane. Um, it's a balance of focused attention with a certain attitude that's a little more open-minded and compassionate and aware. So. Another way in young children of working with mindfulness is helping them label their experience, helping them label their emotions, um, teaching them, um, you know, again, both through demonstrating it and through activities, uh, you know, the, the capacity to um, be compassionate to themselves and not give themselves, a, you know, um, an unnecessarily difficult time and, and then the same towards others. Thank you very much. Uh, we have another question also, and again, it's something that you uh, uh, touched on briefly. Um, the question is, is there any uh, current research looking at the, the efficacy of mindfulness as a treatment for ADHD? Um, there is current research looking at mindfulness as, um, you know, an additional therapy for ADHD. There, you know, no, no one I know of who's done research in this field has seen results to the point that um, you'd suggest it replaced any part of ADHD care. Um, at the same time, um, there have been studies of people with ADHD. Uh, one of the first pilot studies was done by Lydia Zalowska, um, but that's been followed up by several other people in different ways. So um, Dr. Zalowska showed, first of all, that she just wanted to see if people with ADHD can even do this type of practice, and the answer was um, certainly they can, and, and that has a lot to do with the, the teaching of it in that there's no um, 
there, there's no goal of, of completely settling the mind or not having thought. It's just a matter of working with whoever you are. So um, even if you have a busy mind, you can meditate and you're still doing it well. Um, so she showed that people could do it. And then she also showed some working memory improvements, um, excuse me, some neuropsychological improvements. Um, and, that's that, and that study um, is being repeated. Other people have done studies um, working with parents of kids with ADHD and showing benefits, working with parent-child pairs with ADHD and showing benefits. Um, so there has, there, has been, um, there have been several studies suggesting that you know, it works within the ADHD world, um, it benefits families, uh, and again, it can be an ad in addition to traditional therapy. Thank you. Um, also, we have a number of, uh, of uh, participants who want to see the stop slide again. So I'm going to go back to that slide in just a sure. second. But in, in addition to that, there, uh, there's been a general uh, consensus of questions like, how long does, it, uh, how long does the stop method take? Uh, okay. And 60 seconds, two minutes. So, so they want a little more details about that. And I'm sure. going to try right. to go back I, to I appreciate slide. that question. And, and truthfully, um, last year when Mark Katz gave the keynote address at the uh, at Chad, he 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 said, you know, for every if you're if you're giving a lot of talks, for every talk you need a three-hour version, a two-hour version, a one-hour version, and a 30-second version. So um, we're somewhere in the middle of this, but certainly for all of this talk, I, I would you know I, I really appreciate the opportunity to go into it in more detail. Um, you know, the stop practice is one that I often use um, without even calling it mindfulness. And um, when you talk about, you know, behavioral change, it's sort of using whatever tools are available to help someone um, just manage life differently. So the stop practice, for example, I think is something that's very useful um, in helping kids with ADHD with transition. So often when kids with ADHD are transitioning from one activity to the next, they're sort of, you know, three-quarters or four-fifths of the way into the next activity before they finish what they're doing so that, you know, maybe they're wrapping up their homework, but it doesn't quite get into the backpack. Or, you know, they're finishing brushing their teeth, but none of the stuff ends up back in the drawer. Or they're undressing, but, you know, their clothes never quite make it to the hamper. So, you know, one of the ways of using something like the stop practice is just, you know, as a gentle reminder, it takes a long time to make a habit of it, but as a gentle reminder, trying to use it as a way of transitioning. Okay, so you're getting up from the table. You know, stop for a second. And then take a breath. And then, you know, just check in with what's going on around you. And then just sort of pick what has to happen next. So it's a way of helping people, you know, the, the cliche in ADHD, not even a cliche, but it's accurate, but, you know, Dr. Barkley's statement that ADHD isn't a disorder of not knowing what to do, it's a disorder of not doing what, to, doing what you know, you know, hopefully, creating that type of pause as a habit allows people to access what they know. So you might, at the end of homework, instead of saying, you know, specifically, did you put your stuff in your bag or whatever else needs to be prompted, sort of saying, okay, just stop for a second, and then working through this acronym. Um, so it doesn't, this particular practice um, is one that doesn't, isn't, isn't one of prolonged focus attention or anything else. It's just about immediate awareness. So it doesn't take very much time at all. It's just literally pause for a second, take a few breaths, and then after checking in, you decide what to do next. If you can catch a child who's escalating behaviorally, this practice sometimes can be useful. You know, I see you're getting upset. Wait, you know, before you do anything else, take a couple of breaths. You know, what would be the best thing for you to say or do next? And again, 
if they don't have the tools to do to do that next step, it's not going to fix things on its own. But for kids who are developing skills, it's just a way of just over time um, creating this habitual pause. So this particular practice isn't about any length of time. It's just about creating a new habit, you know, of when you know, of of allowing enough space to happen, allowing that pause to happen, so kids can make different choices. Thank you. And along those lines, you mentioned that uh, there that use the analogy of um, exercise for the body and and relationship to uh, mindfulness for the brain. Is there any scientific support or research to show that the act of uh, awareness increases the, the um, habit or makes it likely that it will become more of a habit? Or is, is that uh, generally what the mindfulness research is, is uh, uh, hinting at or showing? Um, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm not sure I understood that question exactly. So the question in terms of someone uh, with ADHD or a parent mm -hmm. who has a child with ADHD, if they are uh, every the more they are engaged in this this activity of being able mm -hmm. to stop and be aware of where they are in a moment, does that increase their ability as in terms of brain functioning to do oh, that, or is it? Uh, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So that, now I understand. Yes. Um, so the the question is is um, you know does I mean I think there's two answers to that question, really, both of which are very encouraging. Um, there have been many, many studies, although most of these specific studies have been outside um, the, you know, the population of people with ADHD, um, showing that when adults practice folk, uh, this sort of attention over time, their ability to attend improves. Um, so um, that they, they've shown uh, for example, some of them, I forget, how, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce their first name, appropriately, but Dr. Lutz um, did a study in which the um, measure was the ability to um, have headphones on and pay attention to a particular auditory stimuli in the midst of a lot of noise, which um, if anyone has ADHD is, is typically described as being very, very challenging, the ability to keep your attention focused on one um, thing you're hearing in the midst of like a cocktail party can be really challenging. And in that study they showed that after two or three months of training, not only were people better able to focus their attention on what they were supposed to focus their attention on, but they were quicker to come back when they got distracted, so that the distractions lasted less time. Um, and so that neuropsychological ability to attend better um, has been demonstrated in multiple studies. Um, the studies that have been done within the ADHD world suggest the same is probably happening, um, but they haven't been um, as many specifically addressing ADHD. Um, but certainly, there, there is a body of research showing that attention training is possible. Um, and then on a physical level, um, Dr. Lazar isn't the only person who's shown physical changes in the brain um, through, uh, you know, that, that, that coincide with mindfulness practice. So um, there have been um, electrical firing patterns that have been shown to change over time. There have been these physiological differences that have been shown to change over time. Um, and one question that people often ask is like, how much do you need? It's like no one knows exactly how much you do you need, but there have been a couple of studies um, showing, a couple of college studies showing that if people practice uh, this sort of thing for a week, so there's this study, uh, th th a week-long study has been done at least twice that I know of, for 20 minutes a day, um, the participants reported decreased anxiety and stress over the next couple of months. 
so that there is you know, some prolonged benefit, at least in the short term, from even a week of practice. So it's not so much exactly how much is needed or, or that we even know exactly you know, what the perfect way of doing it is. There is no perfect. I think the more important thing to just is just recognizing that um, you know that, that these are things we are capable of affecting in ourselves, and that um, and that we just kind of need to get started to do it. Great, thank you. A couple of questions also that are related to um, getting started with mindfulness. There was, a, and again, you may have touched the, on these briefly, but there is uh, one question: Where can you go to find resources on mindfulness training? Is there a um, structured program that one can look into and also another question related to uh, activities that are more likely to uh, in involve mindfulness for children like sports are there any sports that are particularly good that might increase a child's ability to uh, enhance their awareness or parents for that matter great thank you I mean that's a great question whoever asked it thanks so thank you so much for doing it I, I think there's um, um, from for many people, starting a practice like this is easiest if you do start with more, a more structured class. I think the group is very supportive and having um, someone to bounce questions off of because you know it can be kind of confusing, it can even seem kind of pointless at times if you're not getting guidance exactly you know, what the intentions are at any particular moment. Um, so starting with a class can be a particularly, um, you know, a, a very good way to start. And um, there are actually at this point classes offered all around the world. Um, and an increasing number of them being offered online as well. So um, the, the traditional program is called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Um, and if you go to the University of Massachusetts Center for Awareness website, which is linked through my website, so instead of trying to write all that down, you might just, you, you can, my website was already listed. Um, but if you go to that, that website, they list teachers around the world, but really, um, if you just Google it in your local town, I, I almost guarantee something will pop up. A lot of academic medical centers are now offering it um, because uh, you know because it's just been shown to be beneficial for for the you know the people being admitted there. So um, actually, I shouldn't say always. You don't have to be admitted to do MDSR, but they're doing it within their hospitals, and they're also offering it to the community. Um, a second way, uh, just so people are aware that it's out there, is that any um, most psychologists who have been trained in the last decade um, at least have some familiarity with mindfulness because it's really become part of traditional education. Um, and there are many psychologists and psychotherapists integrating it into um, various types of behavioral therapy. Um, you know, if you're able to create the structure for yourself and do it, um, there are really many, many different books that, um, that introduce mindfulness uh, and you know, it can be a little more challenging to do it just in terms of maintaining a beginning practice on your own, but they're out there. Uh, you know, certainly my book, that, that's, a, that's a piece of what I'm, I, I hope uh, to offer people through that. Lydia Zylowska's has a book for uh, adults with ADHD. Um, and then there's countless other books, uh, including you know, some of the best are certainly by John Kabat-Zinn, who created the whole field. Um, so there's many different, all of those different ways to get started. Lots of apps on, on for phones nowadays. Um, so there, there's really just finding what fits best for any individual. Um, and in terms of mindfulness in sports, um, you know, mindfulness isn't unique in, in, in as a way of of developing this sort of ability to to regulate. You know, the ability to to monitor your own behavior. 
Um, you know, one thing I haven't said specifically up till now, but was certainly part of what got me interested in in both the science of in, in the science of mindfulness was that in many ways it's sort of the um, you know it's very closely related to the science of ADHD. So you know, where ADHD is often seen as a uh, you know a deficit in executive functioning, mindfulness in many ways um, when you look at what it promotes um, is that it likely promotes executive function. So um, that is really the overall goal. You know, not you know, any, it, 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 it's that concrete. So, so other things that build mindfulness are really any activity that promote that. So yoga is certainly um, part of many mindfulness programs and likely has the same types of benefits depending on, on how it's taught. Um, a lot of the martial arts probably um, have the same types of benefits, again, depending on how they're taught, but um, they also may be working on the ability to, you know, modulate your actions and and be self-aware and focus and working on memory. So they potentially have the same benefits as well. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there with that one. Great. That, that's very helpful. And, and uh, along those lines also, uh, would you mind just going uh, explaining a little bit more about uh, the relationship between mindfulness and meditation? Um, because I think that's something that might be still a little unclear for many people in terms of the perception that they have of what Sure. Uh, mindfulness is um, absolutely. Thank. Um, I, I'd be happy to. So, um, you know, when you look at the what what mindfulness is, or what the intention is in starting a mindfulness practice, mindfulness practice, it's really um, on the simplest level fairly straightforward. It's very difficult to do, but the concept is that we just want to practice, you know, being, bringing our full attention to whatever we're doing moment to moment with more compassion very simple you know, concept, really hard to live that way. So when you talk about how we're going to do that, it, meditation is kind of the formal practice. So one way to practice being more aware and being more responsive is by taking a few minutes every day and starting a practice where you just practice focused attention. Um, you know, the reason in mindfulness we often start with focusing on physical sensations in the body or, or breathing, um, but on some level that's kind of arbitrary. The reason we focus on those things is just because they're there. They're not particularly, um, you know, they're usually not particularly emotionally laden. We can, they're just something we can focus on that isn't all the distracting thought going on that's very immediate. So um, the point, and what I mean by saying that is like there's no particular goal with, to the meditation practice except to practice those skills. Um, so mindfulness meditation is that style of meditation of just trying to build these skills of focused attention. But really, the broader goal of living mindfully, and and you know this fall I'll, I'll you know my I I'll be speaking on this, this concept of everyday mindfulness, which is um, just living every 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 day, working towards that as a trait almost, because it turns out that the the intention of living that way can be brought to any situation. So if you're playing catch with your child, just play catch. You know, if you notice yourself lost in thoughts and being annoyed about what went on school that day or worried about making dinner, notice you're distracted and bring your full attention back to your child. Um, that has benefits that I think hopefully are apparent, but really there's there's subtler layers of 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 why that type of moment to moment mindfulness can be beneficial. So for example, if you're working with a behavioral plan that involves paying targeted attention to um, successful behaviors in life, um, so often as parents, you know, we get annoyed by something 
and then we're sort of lost in our head for the next hour, like how could that have happened again? We've talked about it for the last month. And if we're that distracted and lost in our head, we're less likely to notice the little successes and positive moments that happen during the day. So the broader concept of living mindfully is trying to expand these ideas, expand this way of living just into all of life. So, so that practice of mindfulness, um, and honestly, from a research point of view, there's still a lot of debate in the field about you know, how much, if any, meditation is needed to build mindfulness. Um, you know, mindfulness is, is this way of relating to our life. Um, you know, the meditation is just a way, a tool of trying to get there. Okay, thank you. Um, the, another question we have relates to ADHD and behavioral disorders. Um, as they coexist, uh, oppositional defiance sort of, for example. Uh, and the question is, how can, uh, can they be addressed through mindfulness as well? Uh, so. um, I think in a similar way to mind, you know, I think the way mindfulness relates to managing those bigger behavioral disorders, again, is kind of, to me, in parallel. You know, I, I've always felt that if you look at the basic outline to the traditional mindfulness-based stress reduction program, so sort of the step-by-step -step way we teach mindfulness in class, um, and look at the sort of basic behavioral approach that you know most people managing behavior in ADHD use, um, they kind of mutually support each other and integrate. And one of the things I think that can easily be lost in, in traditional uh, behavioral therapy if we're not careful is that you know? Is that you ask people to try things, um, but it's really hard to change, and it's really hard to break habits, and it's really hard to you know do all the things that are being asked of you. So what mindfulness I think does isn't change these things on its own, um, but it supports the rest of what you're doing. So um, I've already sort of talked about how like mindfulness might help you focus on moment to moment positive experiences, finding the successes in daily life. And of course, for anyone who's been through a behavioral modification program, that's often the starting point. Long before you start talking about limit setting and managing particular problem behaviors, you want to be focused on what's going right in life. And then, you know, as you move through a behavioral program, you start wanting to look at, you know, what are the triggers of any particular situation, and then in a more um, intentional way, addressing those triggers and, and creating a different next step. And again, mindfulness is working on responsiveness over reactivity, so it can help with that. You know, mind, the, the behavioral program is going to ask you know, to change different habitual ways you communicate, and mindfulness supports that through working with communication and being more aware of communication and how incredible, just like our own perspective, can really lead any interaction with our kids one direction or another. So it's not so much that I think mindfulness as a practice can replace behavioral management, but I think it's a very um, practical and very, very useful way of supporting you know, that, that same path of, of intervention. Thank you. Uh, we have a question that uh, I think is kind of interesting. It's from someone who wanted to know um, how would you address or recommend that they address uh, the guilt if their child is if they're pointing out their child's behavior and um, they're if the behavior isn't necessarily positive and uh, would would you 
is there anything that you might suggest that would help them deal with uh, guilt? I think they are um, uh, basically saying that in their understanding of mindfulness awareness, they're pointing out a behavior, and if that behavior is negative, might that not have some uh, guilty, uh, uh, some issues of guilt in the child as fallout? Does that make sense? Um, I'm not sure I'm fully understanding the question, but I can, I'll, I'll try, because um, you know, there's nothing in the practice of mindfulness that would really have you pointing out anything about anybody else's behavior in, in particular. Sure. Um, so um, I think you know one of the things we um, you know one of the things we often talk about in mindfulness practice is there's certainly um, one of the things we most of us notice very quickly if we start paying attention to our our own sort of mental habits is that a very common one seems like almost a universal one is some sort of voice of self-judgment or self uh, uh, self-judgment is a good word for it. So the you know I should have done better. I feel you know just feeling you know bad about some particular action. Um, some of which is real. I mean, if we've done something and we need to follow up on it because it wasn't particularly well handled, you know, we certainly should. Um, and some of it, which can be very much just kind of, you know, that voice from the peanut gallery that has no particular use. You know, that voice from the peanut gallery that's constantly telling us that we're failing or not good enough or should be doing better. Um, so the practice of mindfulness is often a way of being aware of that thought and then kind of giving ourselves enough space from it to not necessarily buy in, to not just sort of recognize it as kind of a random thought that doesn't necessarily have anything more to it. Um, so when you're working with kids, um, you know, we, we kids need limits and that's just part of parenting. Um, and the mindfulness practice isn't going to change that, but it might just change how we communicate those limits or the language we use or or how we follow up afterwards or or, or maybe a broader awareness of doing it in a way that doesn't. I mean, kids may feel bad about their misbehavior. That's a big part of having ADHD, I think, is that um, kids with ADHD often feel terrible because they, you know, they recognize that they've messed up in some way um, and they entirely didn't mean to. So, um, so you know, in essence, the bigger picture of that is being aware of that full picture as a parent, being aware of, um, how our language and our approach um, might be affecting that, um, recognizing that even being, you know, even, even trying our best, we're not always going to be perfect in it, but just trying to create a bigger environment that promotes success and, and, and well-being in kids. So um, I think that's a bit of a roundabout answer, but I hope it uh, addresses the question. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from a teacher who wants to know, do you have any recommendations for what teachers can do in the classroom to support mindfulness? Uh, I, yeah, so that that's the question. Okay, um, they're actually um, that's a that's a um, that's a wonderful question because there is a real um, a growing research body and certainly a growing movement around mindfulness in education, and um, just like it's very hard to give a quick answer for. Um, you know, how to teach mindfulness to any individual child. Um, for a teacher, certainly um, a lot of the programs start with teachers practicing it themselves. And, and just like so much of teaching is taking the knowledge you have and then, you know, based on your own perspective and, and your own methods of communicating and everything else, translating it in an engaging way for kids, um, a lot of it is, if you're interested in it as a teacher, pursuing it. Um, and there is 
uh, you know, there's a there's a mindfulness and education conference and several different centers in the country studying mindfulness and education um, and doing some very great work and, and really successful in, in you know in, in a surprising number of communities in the country. I mean, there's been studies everywhere from the Bay Area to inner city Baltimore that have shown benefits in the classroom. Um, and then you know, the, if you want a more you know practical detail, a lot of it is just letting kids settle a moment when they're, you know, when they're beginning. I mean, if you want a starting point, it can often be just helping kids settle a moment when they're becoming um, scattered. You know, you can almost picture like a snow globe and sort of so much of the day we just sort of shake it and shake it and shake it until everything becomes cloudy and you can't really see anything at all. Um, and the only way of getting past that is by letting things settle a bit. So it could just be taking a moment when kids come off the playground to just proactively help them settle for a few seconds or a minute and then start class instead of expecting them to sprint in off the playground and immediately attend, which you know some can, but it's often kind of challenging. Um, but again, if you're interested in that as a concept, um, there is um, plenty being done of that. And you can, if you just Google mindfulness and education, um, you'll find two or three different websites that have lists of resources, programs, research. Um, I believe I linked to at least one of them, but there's more than, than that available. And, um, and I would encourage anyone, again, any parent or any teacher who's interested in teaching this to kids um, and isn't already practicing, practicing it themselves, I mean, I, I think I've, I've probably said it multiple times, but you know, that really is the starting point. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Burton, we've actually, uh, we have about another, another four minutes or so left. If you would, we do not have any any more questions right now, but if you'd like to take a moment to offer a few more thoughts on anything that, uh, or expound on anything that you've discussed, uh, we can certainly take the time to do that. Um, and to the audience, if you do have any, uh, any last questions, please feel free to submit them, but we may not be able to get to them right now. We may have to, uh, uh, you can call one of our health information specialists and, and, uh, and get some information in the future also. So Dr. Burton, would you, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think one of the things I often say when I speak about mindfulness and ADHD is that, um, you know, if on some level, if it doesn't seem intuitive and common sense, I feel like I probably um, need to explain it a little different because in many ways, um, you know, mindfulness is a way of, of just trying to live easier with the ups and downs of life, and that's a benefit I think. Um, you know, most of us intuitively understand. In, in some way, for anyone who's familiar with it, mindfulness is related to um, the serenity prayer, which is used often in uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous and saying, you know, that, that we're, which basically, and, and to paraphrase it, says that you know, we're going to live our lives a little easier if we um, are better able to accept the things we can't change and, and are very proactive about changing the things we can. So, um, you know, in sort of setting out to practice mindfulness, um, I think it particularly helps with ADHD because of just the complex effects ADHD has on life. You know, ADHD increases the stress for everybody and stress has its own effects. You know, ADHD affects relationships. Um, you can even look at it in more level of detail than that. You know, ADHD potentially affects sleeping and eating habits and mindfulness has been shown to improve sleeping and eating habits. So it's really a tool that um, because it kind of just addresses self-regulation is a very natural fit for, for anyone with ADHD. Um, you know, one question that didn't come up specifically that sometimes does is, you know, is this, which I, which I alluded to earlier, is, is this even possible for someone with ADHD to practice? And um, 
And really there's two answers to that because one of them is that um, part of the practical side of it is when parents practice it, their kids benefit. So that doesn't necessarily specifically pertain to um, you know, the, someone with ADHD having to do it directly even. Um, but the other thing that's really important to understand is that since there is no goal of having a, a totally quiet mind or a still mind or not, you know, or reaching some, you know, peaceful place through sheer effort, um, anyone can really do it. So even if you're someone who is constantly on the go and, uh, you know, has a busy mind and who doesn't naturally sit for very long, um, there's a way to adapt the practice. You don't even have to sit still. You know, yoga is a form of practice. There's a walking practice. There's a, you know, there's many, many different ways to, to build these traits. So I would just encourage anyone to, um, you know, anyone with interest to explore and find what fits most naturally for you. And um, certainly in my experience and in this growing body of research, I think, um, you know, it potentially can have great effects in everyday life. Dr. Burton, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful uh, presentation and uh, on a very exciting topic. And this will conclude our webinar and to our audience. Thank you again and have a wonderful day. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. Want school mornings to be stress-free? Planning the night before can make mornings run more smoothly for you and your child. Place a basket or box by the front door for backpacks, lunch boxes, coats, jackets, and whatever else your child might need to grab on their way out. For more tips to get the school year started right, go to the CHAD website, www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4 adhd.org.